WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader, a national litigation firm advising companies in business disputes, internal investigations, and commercial matters. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. This New Yorker podcast is supported by Bulldog Online Yoga, the streaming platform that makes working out both fun and convenient. With a variety of classes for all levels, Bulldog Online offers yoga streaming set to energizing playlists on your schedule with zero intimidation. Head over to BulldogOnline.com today to stream your first 30 days completely free. That's BulldogOnline.com. This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear James Purdy's story about Jesse May, which was published in The New Yorker in 1957. I love to come to your house, Myrtle told her. Twenty-odd years ago, before she married and had children, as a child herself, she had visited Mrs. Hemlock and had enjoyed her cookies and cakes, her homemade ices and tarts. But I can't understand Jessie May's being that untidy, Mrs. Hemlock said. The story was chosen by Sam Lipsight, who is the author of three novels and two story collections, including The Fun Parts, which came out in 2012. His own fiction has been appearing in The New Yorker since 2010. Hi, Sam. Hi, Deborah. So have you been a longtime fan of James Purdy's? What, what made you think of choosing his story for the podcast? Well, I am a longtime fan. I think I first came across him in my early 20s and uh, became a great fan of the short stories that appeared in a book called, in America, Color of Darkness. I read stories like Daddy Wolf and... Don't Call Me By My Right Name and The Lesson. And, of course, a, a famous work of his called uh, 63 Dream Palace. And uh, so I, I read those and was a big admirer. And when my first book came out, he was kind enough to say some words on its behalf. And we corresponded briefly and then fell out of touch. And he died much later, but yeah. he's been a writer close to my heart. How did you find that first book you read? Well, I was studying with a man named Gordon Lish, and right. both Gordon and a lot of students were talking a lot about yeah. Purdy's stuff, and uh, I was intrigued. I asked just because, for instance, Jonathan Franzen called him one of the most undervalued and underread writers in America, and somehow, although he's had very vocal fans in the past, including Tennessee Williams and Gore Vidal and Susan Sontag and, and others, he never seems to have quite made the mainstream. Why do you think that is? He had a great quote, something about the New York slicks treated him badly and the small magazines treated him worse. But right. <laughs> uh, a lot of it had to do with his subject matter, I think. Uh, he certainly wrote from the position of the outcast. He wrote from the perspectives of women. He wrote from the perspectives of gay men. He wrote from the perspectives of, of uh, African Americans. And mm-hmm. Actually, a big part of his formation as an artist was spending a lot of time in a in a salon run by a woman named Gertrude Abercrombie, I believe. And most of the people there were famous or soon-to-be-famous jazz musicians like Dizzy Gillespie and Miles Davis. And a lot of writers and artists were hanging out as well. And it was a kind of very exciting mix of people. And some took what was happening there into painting and some took it into writing. And they were all inspired by the jazz that was being played. Mm-hmm. There's a, a story about how he sent his one of his first books to Dame 
Edith Sitwell, who, and she just automatically assumed that he was black. Yes, so. she thought he was black and yeah. said only a black person could have written this and, yeah. and so forth. In the context of, of being someone who wrote mostly about marginalized characters, at least marginalized in the society he was living in, how does About Jesse May fit that profile? Well, I think Jesse May is one of the stories that's really connected to his youth. He grew up uh, in Ohio, and I think there were a lot of ladies around who had conversations <laughs> like the one similar we're about to, to that, hear. where they are, uh, <laughs> yes, like the one we're about to hear. And I think he was a great observer of not only the new experiences he was having, but of his past and, mm -hmm. and the sounds of the world he grew up in. Well, we'll talk more after the story. And now here's Sam Lipsight reading About Jesse May by James Purdy. About Jesse May. I don't visit Jesse May's anymore because of her untidiness, Myrtle said to Mrs. Hemlock as the two women walked through the garden where they had been talking toward Mrs. Hemlock's kitchen where Myrtle was going to copy down her recipe for Bavarian cookies for Mrs. Hemlock. It was a warm spring day warm even for St. Augustine, Florida, and a certain languor in the air hinted at an early summer. But I didn't know it had gone so far, Mrs. Hemlock said. Nothing is under any order or control at all. That I can believe, Mrs. Hemlock said. Jessie Mays never had to do anything for herself, Myrtle said. Mrs. Hemlock stared at her, the desire for more written on her heavily powdered face. You know, Jessie May was twice an heiress, Myrtle said. I knew she had everything, of course, Mrs. Hemlock said, in somewhat hushed tones, as though a matter of considerable delicacy had been disclosed. Myrtle glanced at Mrs. Hemlock's apron and said, That's cunning. It's Portuguese or Spanish or something, Mrs. Hemlock said, opening the screen door to the kitchen. You have beautiful things, Mrs. Hemlock, Myrtle said. Mrs. Hemlock laughed pleasantly. I love to come to your house, Myrtle told her. Twenty-odd years ago, before she married and had children, as a child herself, she had visited Mrs. Hemlock and had enjoyed her cookies and cakes, her homemade ices and tarts. But I can't understand Jessie May's being that untidy, Mrs. Hemlock said. She pointed to a large easy chair that she had brought into her kitchen for visitors. Myrtle sat down with a great sigh of pleasure. This chair, she exclaimed. And then, having fingered the spotless and ported linen cloth on the kitchen table, she said, I'm Jessie May's distant cousin, you know. I remember, Mrs. Hemlock said. Moving swiftly for such a large woman, she opened the refrigerator and took out two tall, thickly frosted glasses of fruit punch. You jewel, Myrtle squealed. You think of everything, and you have everything. I'm alone, Mrs. Hemlock explained, and I have to keep busy at something. But most women wouldn't bother, Myrtle said. Well, Mrs. Hemlock said, and drank some of her own fruit punch, hoping Myrtle would get back to Jessie May. It's wonderful, Myrtle said, referring to the drink. And I suppose the recipe is a secret? No, no, Mrs. Hemlock said, and then... I didn't know you were Jessie May's distant cousin. I'd forgotten, that is. Myrtle put her glass of fruit punch on the kitchen table. I'm really one of the last of her real family. Myrtle spoke indifferently, but with a certain emphasis that implied that the relationship might be important for others to remember. 
Jessie May is, of course, basically a fine person, Mrs. Hemlock stated, fearful now that she had perhaps stressed the untidiness too much, even though it was Myrtle who had brought the whole subject up. Mrs. Hemlock, Jessie May's in terrible shape, Myrtle exclaimed, and she stared at her drink, as though she were not going to touch it again now. Mrs. Hemlock moistened her lips. Is she worried or something, she asked. Worried my foot. Myrtle picked up her glass again and took a sip of the punch. She lives to worry other people, if you want to know. Too much money and not enough to do. Do you know she has a maid to dress her now? She doesn't. Mrs. Hemlock had stood until now in her capacity of hostess. She decided to sit down. She sat directly in front of Myrtle and said again, She doesn't. I don't think Jessie May does a thing for herself anymore, Myrtle said. She has eight servants. And yet her house is so... And she keeps those eight servants busy, let me tell you, Myrtle interrupted. There must be twenty rooms in her house if there's one, and they're all in use. I was only at her house in the old days, when she entertained General Waite so much, Mrs. Hemlock said. Jessie May's brother was more or less head of the house then. Well, he liked to act like he was, Myrtle said. But Jessie May was running the whole place even then, and running him, too. He died of her bossing, many people think. Then, of course, I've been there several times to tea, and to her concerts, Mrs. Hemlock put in, rather firmly, before stepping down altogether. Oh, those are nothing. You have to spend the night there to know how it really is. For just a second, Mrs. Hemlock looked at her large red recipe book, lying open to the page where Myrtle was to write out the recipe for Bavarian cookies. Jessie May's trouble is she doesn't know what she wants until the moment she wants it. You can't get her to plan anything ahead of time. More punch, Mrs. Hemlock said, and some of my icebox fudge bars with it? I'd love a fudge bar, Myrtle said. Mrs. Hemlock went to the refrigerator again and brought out the fudge bars, neatly stacked on a dessert plate. Myrtle took one and allowed Mrs. Hemlock to refill her glass. As I say, Mrs. Hemlock said in her matter-of-fact voice, as though to summarize the discussion so far, as I say, I was never a friend of Jessie May's, but I've known her for 25 years. I could eat these all day, Myrtle said, chewing softly. I wonder you don't win prizes with your culinary genius, Mrs. Hemlock. You should be famous. She finished the fudge bar and then said abruptly, I know everything about her. It was almost as though Jessie May herself were there before them on the TV screen, helpless and exposed to all their comments. I lived with her for a month, Myrtle said, in 1952. A month, mind you. Then of course you do know, Mrs. Hemlock said in a voice close to awe. I was afraid every minute, Myrtle said. Mrs. Hemlock showed a slight lack of comprehension. You spoke of her untidiness, Mrs. Hemlock? Well, Myrtle laughed. You wouldn't think that anybody would be untidy with their jewels, would you? Jewels around everywhere? She left thousands and thousands of dollars' worth of diamonds in my room. Mrs. Hemlock closed her eyes. Then one evening I discovered a ruby pin and some rings in my top bureau drawer. Mrs. Hemlock started to say something, but Myrtle was too quick for her. I couldn't stand that kind of untidiness, she said. And besides, I'm not so sure it wasn't purposeful. Well, Mrs. Hemlock managed to cry. It's part of her way of getting even. But what could she want to get even for when she's got everything, Mrs. Hemlock demanded. 
She hates men, Myrtle said. She hates women even more. And she's not only untidy. You started to use the right word a minute ago. She's dirty. Mrs. Hemlock let out a small gasp. I could tell you things, Myrtle said. But we're here in a beautiful, tidy house with such wonderful things to eat, I won't. She lay back in her chair, leaving Mrs. Hemlock with a look of complete and unexpected emptiness on her face. Then, sitting up straight again, Myrtle said, Her whole life is to get back at everybody. Hence the servants. Hence the parties at which nothing is quite right. Hence the jewels strewn everywhere to make everybody feel he is suspected of stealing. And don't think she doesn't accuse people of taking them. And not just the servants. Why, she sounds... Gone, Mrs. Hemlock said, groping for the word. No, Myrtle corrected her politely, smiling briefly. Jessie May is just hateful. She's not gone, as you say. A man, a strong, old-fashioned type over her, would go a long way toward getting the house tidied up and the jewels either sold or put in a vault. She hasn't had a strong hand over her since the day her old father died. She's done just as she pleased every second. But the thing nobody seems to know, and nobody can believe even when you tell them, is that the whole house is nothing but a haven for dogs. Jessie May has 30 pedigreed dogs if she has one. Well, I never, Mrs. Hemlock said. She sleeps downstairs. The dogs live upstairs. When I stayed there that month, she let me see the whole performance. After all the visitors leave, she lets the dogs out of their rooms, and they romp and tear and romp and tear, and that old woman runs and romps right along with them, laughing and shouting at them, and the dogs all yelping and carrying on like wild animals after her until you wouldn't know which acted the nuttier, her or the dogs. Good God, Mrs. Hemlock exclaimed. I usually never talk about Jessie May to anybody, Myrtle said. Of course, but you've been so kind and all, to all of us neighbors, but especially to me that I think of you as a confidant. Thank you, Myrtle, Mrs. Hemlock said. It's the truth. You've been an angel. Why you've baked for us and sent us things as though this was another Delmonico's. I've never tasted such cooking. And the comparison between your wonderful generosity and neatness and normal life always comes as such a distinct contrast with Jessie May, who is, after all, my cousin. But she never does anything for anybody. And she just isn't the kind of person you want to visit. But the poor old thing, Mrs. Hemlock ventured. Well, with all her wealth, why doesn't she try to straighten herself out? She could help so many people if she cared about anybody but herself. Myrtle waited for Mrs. Hemlock to speak, but the older woman sat there quietly, a fudge bar still untasted in her hand, thinking about Jessie May's running and romping with the dogs. Shouldn't I copy out that recipe for you, Myrtle said, finally? and she took out of her apron pocket a piece of paper on which was written her recipe for Bavarian cookies. That was Sam Lipsight, reading about Jessie May by James Purdy. The story appeared in The New Yorker in May of 1957 and was included in the complete short stories of James Purdy, which was published by Live Right in 2013 with an introduction by John Waters. The New Yorker Festival is back and it's our 21st year. Undeterred by COVID, we're coming to you virtually with a fantastic lineup, and you can enjoy it all without even putting on your shoes. Chris Rock is joining us, Jerry Seinfeld and Steve Martin too, and a performance in conversation with Fiona Apple. There's also Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Eric Holder, and many more. 
You can find out everything that's happening and buy tickets at newyorker.com slash festival. Again, that's newyorker.com slash festival. See you there. So Sam's story is basically about three women. We have Myrtle... Mrs. Hemlock, and we have Jesse May. What a name, Mrs. Hemlock. <laughs> <laughs> and it's about how they measure up to each other or how they judge each other in terms of social status and convention. But what do you think is, is at stake here? Well, to me, what's wonderful about the story is the repression, for one thing, and the way they keep sort of circling around something that might disturb them but are so eager to talk about it at the same time, this this kind of obsession with Jesse May, who is untidy and mm-hmm. and then, as we find out, is also dirty because she runs wild with dogs. And um, I think there's this incredible, you know, moralistic tone these women are taking, yet also a deep desire, perhaps, to be that untidy, to have that kind of crazed yeah, freedom. And so they, they are trying to... Uh, have a conversation that will make them feel better about where they are. And uh, it's quite wonderful to see all the little feints that they make in their, in their dialogue to both have the salacious conversation and avoid looking interested in the subject. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> There's that moment when uh, Myrtle says, well, I'm not going to say anything more about it. Right. And, and, and Mrs. Hemlock has this look of just incredible emptiness, desolation on her <laughs> yeah. face. And I think that that's the kind of the torquing, that's the pressure of the story. It just the tension builds and builds until we move from, you know, untidy to dirty to the wild right. dogs. And it's kind of, you know, this image that bursts the story open at the very end. Yeah. I mean, there, there's so much disapproval here and there's so much implied. But what exactly does Jessie May do wrong? She has, She's wealthy. She has servants. She hasn't had to do much for herself. And she, she does gives, what she wants. She gives into her own whims. Yes. Well, that's what she that's what she does wrong is she does what she wants. And she's in a position to do so because of her wealth, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And these women are, are quite envious. And it comes out in different ways. But they are sort of propping each other up. What do you think is going on with the, with the jewelry? I mean, there's that, that sort of bizarre, you know, she's so untidy with her jewelry. She lives all, leaves all these diamonds lying around. And then there's that, you know, the rings and the, the ruby pin that turn up in Myrtle's drawer mm-hmm. and the implication that, that Jesse may accuses other people of stealing. And may have accused Myrtle of... May have accused... And maybe that was why, you know, the month ended. Right, <laughs> right. But do you think Myrtle did steal? I mean, is is, I is think she trying to cover something up with this? Yeah, I think that in some ways she's, as we like to say now, framing the narrative mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, for the community about Jesse May because perhaps she she's didn't do something. Red-handed. Yeah, I mean that's certainly a, a fair reading of the story. There's this line that comes up twice where where Mrs. Hemlock says that Jesse May has everything, and Myrtle says to Mrs. Hemlock, "Well, you have everything." What do they mean? I, there's uh, words like pleasure and pleasant come mm-hmm. up a lot in the story too, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the beginning with Mrs. Hemlock and she smiles pleasantly and she feels pleasure and she flushes with pleasure at one point, I think. And mm-hmm. uh, I think what he's kind of, Purdy's poking fun at is this feeling that many people have that whatever they have is not enough and whatever 
and other and projecting onto other people the that's notion that well she has a perfect life or she has a wonderful life or she has everything, but there's also a little bit of disdain in it too. Everything seems double edged in a in a purdy story. So when you say something, you say you love somebody's house or you love their cooking, it always there's always the ghost of I hate your house and I hate your cooking. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's also you know I, I suppose you won't give out your recipe, you right? Know? Yeah, and she's like no, no, you know, <laughs> yeah, because it's not that special a recipe. <laughs> yeah. So she's kind of making it a tense situation by exalting the recipe and so forth. Um, so it's just that what's wonderful is the the detail work that Purdy manages with the dynamics mm-hmm. of these of these two women and all of the all the ways that that food and drink and gossip can sort of be a nice glaze over what's really happening mm-hmm. what what what's really itching mm-hmm. and then what what's really itching is the word dirty dirty yes right. so, so we that's as i said we move from untidy to dirty which is kind of the movement of the story do you think there's something there's something below the surface that's implied there. I mean, is it sexual? What is? I mean, is, you mean bestiality or something? <laughs> well, I don't. You know, but she she hates men and she hates women even more. Right. And there's that line Myrtle wants her to have you know a strong old fashioned man over her. Right. Um, in a sense, beating her down. So one gets a sense of some maybe of sexual freedom or something there that's oh, not well, being think, said directly. I think that the running with the dogs yeah. is sort of, um, to Myrtle at least, linked to kind of sexual abandon, is linked to mm-hmm. sexual freedom. Uh, I don't, I mean, I think that it's both literal. I think she does run around with her dogs mm-hmm. in her house, and mm-hmm. then I think it also... But at least uh, they're pedigreed. Yeah, they're pedigreed dogs, <laughs> but, but it also has some very exciting associations for... For Myrtle. Well, Purdy, as you said, was gay, and and he suffered a lot of what he felt was censorship in his life, and and I wonder if if Jesse may maybe a stand-in for him in terms of you know someone who has inappropriate behavior. Yeah, I think that's certainly there. So this um, is an imagined conversation about himself in a way. It's himself, but also a lot of the people that he sort of associated himself with during his long life, sort of all of the communities of, of outcasts, of people who are not, who are untidy, mm-hmm. the untidy people. And yet we have some kind of sympathy for Myrtle and Mrs. Hemlock sitting there in that kitchen. Yeah, I don't think it would work without that. Yeah. I think that it, otherwise they're just these kind of cardboard characters that mm-hmm. are full of gossip and full of kind of dim judgmentalism. And uh, no, they have, they're clearly trying to at least uh, maintain some sort of balance, some sort of dignity mm-hmm. with all of this. And there seem to be levels of it. You know, why, why is Myrtle Myrtle and Mrs. Hemlock is Mrs. Hemlock? You know, why isn't Myrtle a Mrs.? She's married. Is there some sort of social judgment in, in the naming? I think that Mrs. Hemlock is the more, is the older matronly character and that, and and Purdy is kind of doing a a writer's trick of of kind of giving us a bit to go on just through the names. Mm-hmm. And Myrtle is sort of the the younger, perhaps more fiery and imaginative one, mm-hmm. and possibly also the the thief, the more the more <laughs> conniving yeah, one. Yeah, the more conniving. There's that wonderful one. line. She looks at the apron and says, "That's cunning." Yeah, 
what's cunning about this apron? <laughs> well, I wondered if that was, uh, I'd like to look that up, if that was lingo of the time. You yeah. Say, that's, instead of you saying that's cool, you would say that's cunning. Yeah. And also the funny kind of, oh, it's Spanish or Portuguese or something. Pretty, I think, taught Spanish. Yeah. I think he's kind of having a little bit of fun with, with Mrs. Hemlock's sense of the world, too. Right. Well, coming back to her name, why is she Hemlock? <laughs> I mean, is she poisonous? Is she, she actually seems the less poisonous of the two. Well, but she's the one who wants to keep coming back to it. And she's the one, in some ways, because she has this cover of being the one with the punch and the one with the, with the wonderful food and mm. so generous. Fudge the, bars. The fudge bars, <laughs> the icebox fudge bars. She might be actually the locus of all evil in this story. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm not sure. Do you think that these conversations, which may be happening in other kitchens about Jessie May, would have any effect on Jessie May in her life? Well, I like to imagine Jessie May as someone maybe impossible, but beyond these kinds of yeah. gossipy exchanges. Right. Having fun with her dogs, whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> Now, most of the story is written in dialogue form. We get these stage directions between. What do you learn about writing dialogue from this story? I think that when you're writing dialogue, you want it to be doing more than one thing all the time. And so that you want it to be advancing the story, especially when the narrative really relies on it and the energy of the story relies on it. But you also, it also, you you want it to tell something about the world the character lives in and you want it to tell something about the character. And also you can contrast different approaches to the language that these characters have and different ways of, of speaking. And, and you can trace out a lot about the world they live in through the way they speak about it. So I think that when it works, when something's dialogue heavy, it's containing all of that mm -hmm. as you go. And yet the story here seems to me to be happening somewhere beyond the dialogue. I mean, the, well, the, it's every, the actual text of the story. Well, is, it's a lot of subtext, and it's a yeah. lot of the idea of... They're saying these words instead of other words, and, and that always creates a wonderful tension mm -hmm. in fiction. And they are trying to keep everything down, but they don't really want to, and so they, <laughs> they kind of loosen <laughs> up a little yeah. bit here and there to let, let the repressed sp spurt up a bit. So... It's fun to watch them do that for consciously or unconsciously. Yeah, yeah. There's a, a quote from Susan Sontag where she, she said that Purdy had three different voices. There's Purdy the satirist and fantasist, Purdy the gentle naturalist of American, particularly small-town American life, and Purdy the writer of vignettes or sketches, which give us a horrifying snapshot image of helpless people destroying each other. So which do you think is in use here? The last two. Yeah. <laughs> or all three. You know, all three. I mean, some people put a magic realist tag on him at times. Um, yeah. He did a lot of different things, and yeah. he wrote about a lot of different kinds of characters. There's no one purdy character. There's no one yeah. purdy setting. And so yeah. th there's, there's a vastness in the work that's really quite astounding. How does this story compare to, the, to your favorites from the um, past? It's similar. It's shorter. Yeah. than some of my favorite stories, but not much. But, you know, there's a, another book of his I love, The, the Nephew, mm -hmm. which has the... Novel. It's a novel, and it's sort of about kid dies in the war, and the, his aunt wants to go around and 
find out everything she can about him from the people of the town. And so there's all, there are all of these conversations about this missing boy and, of course, revelations that she didn't really want or expect. <laughs> but uh, he's so good at making the familiar strange and the strange familiar, as, as that old saw goes. Really such a remarkable ear for language and such a sharp, funny eye for, for human behavior. Why do you think he, he did have a sort of difficult career? There were other people writing about black life. There were other people writing about gay life at the time who didn't have the same experience. No, but he was genuinely strange. <laughs> His, I mean, he took us into places that didn't just confirm what we thought we knew, but really could horrify, could be revelatory, but were always kind of off, didn't really fit even the way that certain writers could write about those themes in a more mainstream manner. He didn't. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to. Maybe he couldn't. Maybe it just came from this place that wasn't going to be easily absorbed. Of course, time has, I think, proved him to be someone that a lot of people can relate to, but mm -hmm. he, was, he was ahead of it. Too late. Too late. But there were people writing essays against him when his books came out, just saying that they were too filthy or too strange or too off and that shouldn't be what our literature is about. And, mm -hmm. you know, really, he was, it wasn't that even that he was ignored. He was, he was viciously attacked. I mean, he was, he was earlier, but do you, why do you think he didn't sort of ride the same wave as William Burroughs or any of the other people who were working with that kind of grotesque, you know, outrageous? Well, somebody, maybe it was Jonathan Franzen called him the mix between Tennessee Williams and, mm -hmm. and William Burroughs. But in a way, you can see why if you're full on Tennessee Williams, that'll work. Mm -hmm. And if you're full on William Burroughs, but being somewhere in between is yeah. kind of maybe even produces something stranger. And uh, he was not a beat. He was his own strange bird. Well, Gore Vidal said that Purdy should one day be placed alongside William Faulkner in the somber Gothic corner of the Cemetery of American Literature. Do you, do you think that's a match? <laughs> well, I guess what I really think about Purdy is that, now this is getting very macabre, but you'd have mm -hmm. to dismember him and put him in a lot of different corners <laughs> of, of different. the cemetery. <laughs> he might actually <laughs> like that idea. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Sam. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Sam Lipsight is the author most recently of the story collection The Fun Parts and the novel The Ask. His last story, The Naturals, appeared in The New Yorker in May of 2014. James Purdy's Complete Short Stories was published in 2013 by Live Right, which also reissued his novels Malcolm, Eustace Chisholm and the Works, and Cabot Wright Begins. You can download 98 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. Subscribers to the magazine can access the tablet edition at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. Online and in the tablet edition, you can hear the short stories in the magazine read by their authors. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff and Alex Barron of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.